Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we ask that as we come to it now, you would speak to us, that you would incline our hearts toward your truth, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been journeying through the book of Exodus the last, really the almost the entirety of this year, but we've paused in chapter 20 to do a sermon series on the 10 words, the 10 commandments that God gives to the people of Israel here on Mount Sinai. We've considered the first three, and this morning we come to the last of the what have been called the vertical commands, those which have to do directly with our relationship with God, and that is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So this morning, the outline there that you have in your notes, if you have it in front of you, if you happen to pick up a sheet on the way in, is the what of the Sabbath, the why of the Sabbath, and the how of the Sabbath. So let's make our way through that outline today. First of all, the what of the Sabbath is in verse 8 here in our text, where God says to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So when, when God says this to his people, what is it that he's talking about? Uh, as far as we know, in the Bible, this is the first time this command has been given specifically to any group of people, although the Sabbath has been in effect, as we'll see in a moment, since Exodus chapter 16. But here specifically, God gives them the command to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And here's how I want to define the essence of the Sabbath. What is it? It is the cessation of work for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust. Let me read that definition again. It is the cessation of work for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust. We'll take each one of those three parts here. First of all, cessation of work. In Exodus chapter 23, just a few chapters from Exodus 20, we read the following. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien, that is the sojourner or the immigrant, may be refreshed. So it's the purpose, the cessation of work. Six days of labor are called for, and then one day in which there is no labor. So it's the cessation of work, but it's for the purpose of rest. We read in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 2 and 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. You noticed here, as part of that rest on the seventh day, the people of Israel were to engage in a holy convocation, a solemn rest. That is, it is a day in which... The, their normal work is being set apart so that, that they might engage in a form of holy convocation of solemn rest. What might that be? Well, certainly it would include worship. We see as we come to the New Testament, as the Sabbath was still being practiced by the Jews in those days, synagogue worship was a regular part of the Jewish seventh-day Sabbath. We see that, of course, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus comes into the temple and he unfolds the scroll of Isaiah. Well, what was that? It was on the Sabbath day. It was on the seventh day in which the Jews gathered in the synagogue. We see it also in Acts chapter 13, verses 42 through 44, Acts 15, verse 21, 17, verse 2, and 18, verse 4 of the book of Acts, all this idea that included within synagogue worship was a regular part of the Jewish Sabbath. So not only was it a cessation of work for the purpose of rest, but that rest included worship of God in a corporate way. 
Finally, expression of trust. So it's the cessation of work for the purpose of rest, but as an expression of trust in God. We see that most clearly in, the, in Exodus chapter 16, which we've already considered several months ago. Remember, in that chapter, God sets the Sabbath up for the people, even though he hasn't commanded it of them to our knowledge. Nevertheless, in that passage, they are told to go out and get manna six days, but on the day before the seventh day, they are to gather twice as much so that they don't have to go out and gather. And why was that? So that they would trust God to provide for all of their needs. And so the Sabbath is, in essence, a cessation of work for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust. Picking up on this idea of an expression of trust, one Old Testament commentator writes the following about the Old Testament Sabbath. It says, Man normally is the master of his time. He is free to dispose of it as he sees fit or as necessity bids him. But the Israelite is duty-bound once every seven days to assert by word and deed that God is the master of time. One day out of seven, the Israelite is to renounce dominion over his own time and recognize God's dominion over it. Simply, every seventh day, the Israelite renounces his autonomy and affirms God's dominion over him in the conclusion that every seventh day the Israelite is to renounce dominion over his time, thereby renounce autonomy and recognize God's dominion over time and thus over himself. Keeping the Sabbath is an acceptance of the kingdom and sovereignty of God. So that was the idea. It was an expression of their trust in God, that God had the right over their life, that he was the one who was to be trusted and supremely valued and worshipped. And the structure of the Sabbath was intended to be inconvenient. God is the master of all time, and he holds all the time that we think actually belongs to us. And so the Sabbath was meant to reinforce that. It was a cessation of work, for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust. And before we come to the why, I think it's important to underscore that the Sabbath was meant to be a, be a day of gladness for the people of Israel. It wasn't intended to be a day of gloom. But sadly, God's people have not always seen it that way. Amos chapter 8, verse 5 gives us the attitude of many Israelites in those days when they say, When will the new moon be over that we can sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale. See, in those days, they, they saw it as a great inconvenience. You're keeping us from profiting. We could sell wheat today. We could sell grain today. When will this new moon be over? When will it? It's clear that they saw it as a day of gloom. But that's the, not the way God commended it to them. Even though God's people viewed the Sabbath as a day of restriction, he intended it to be a day of blessing. We see the attitude that he intended for his people in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that was the intention. The intention was always to be a day of blessing and delight, even though because of a lack of faith, God's people did not see it that way. So that's the what of the Sabbath. It's a cessation of work for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust 
and it was intended to be a day in which they were glad and not gloomy. Number two, the why of the Sabbath. Why was the Sabbath given? Well, we see one reason here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Would you look there with me? For in six days, this is the, the four, there's the purpose. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So I've got three reasons here under, under this point about why Israel was called to observe the Sabbath. And the first one is given right here in our text in verse 11. That is, as a pattern of likeness to God in creation. Remember what happened back at creation when God created the world? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read the following. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So obviously in Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 it's referring back to Genesis chapter 2. God created the world with a Sabbath principle embedded in it. God set aside one day in seven to rest not because he needed to rest but because he had finished his work of creation. So the Sabbath is embedded into the fabric of the world and was not invented by Moses. By telling them to remember the Sabbath, God was reminding his people that God was not calling the Sabbath into existence at Mount Sinai. Remember, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not just the Jews. Have you ever thought about where the week comes from? Where does the whole idea of a seven-day week even originate? Well, days come from the earth's rotations on its axis. We know that from middle school science, I hope. Months are more or less gauged to the lunar cycle. Uh, this year, or the year, is, the restful, uh, or, or the, is resting on the revolution of the earth around the sun. But what about the week? Well, because God made it that way. Every time we cycle from Sunday to Saturday, we are embodying the Sabbath principles that in, were introduced into the world by God himself. So the first reason that they were called to remember the Sabbath day was to acknowledge the Sabbath principle that was in creation and own it for themselves. So that's the first reason they were to observe the Sabbath. Second, as a result of their redemption from Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, is a parallel passage of the Ten Commandments that are given here in Exodus 20. They're, they're restated in Deuteronomy 5. And in Deuteronomy 5, interestingly, a different reason is given for why they are to observe the Sabbath or to remember the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, the reason is God's activity in creation. But in Deuteronomy 5, it's their redemption from Egypt. Let me read those verses to you. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember, here's the reason, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt 
And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So we see a second reason for why they were given the Sabbath day. It was as an acknowledgement of their redemption from Egypt. But there's a third reason that we see in the book of Exodus for why Israel was to keep the Sabbath. We've seen it was a pattern of God in creation. It was a result of their redemption from Egypt. And thirdly, it was a sign of their covenant with God. Would you look at Exodus chapter 31 with me if you're still in Exodus 20? Just turn over a few chapters to Exodus 31 and look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So you see here another reason given as to why Israel was to keep a Sabbath day. It was a sign of their covenant. We see those words several times. We see the word sign in verse 13. It's used again in verse 16 or 17 as a sign between me and the people of Israel. And and then God's pattern at creation is reinforced there in verse 17 as well. So under Moses... The Sabbath was central to Israel's identity as the people of God. Much like circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the rainbow was the sign of the Noahic covenant, so Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Resting on a Saturday was the sign of their national covenant with God. So those are the three reasons for their why. Pattern of God at creation, acknowledgement result of their redemption from Egypt, and then finally as a sign of their covenant with God. Now, I know I've, I've flown through those points fairly quickly, but I hope that you get the general idea. We've seen what the Sabbath is. It's a cessation of work for the purpose of rest as an expression of trust. And we've seen why it, why it was instituted was because it was pattern of God at creation. It was a sign of their redemption from Egypt and it was a or sorry a result of their redemption from Egypt and a sign of their covenant with God. So now we come to everybody's favorite question, which is the how. So what does the old covenant Sabbath day here in Exodus 20 have to do with the new covenant people of God in our day? And that's where all the debate rages. Most of, most of everything that I've talked about so far is not debated by anybody in the Christian church. It's, it, it, I think everybody would affirm, basically, what I've said. But the, the debate rages around uh, the how of the Sabbath. How are we supposed to think about it? How are we supposed to live in light of it, etc.? And we're going to talk about that some this morning. But before we get to some of that, let me just acknowledge that the New Testament anticipates this. 
the New Testament anticipates that God's people are going to have to wrestle with the Sabbath day. And there's going to be differences of opinion on the Sabbath within the true church of God. For instance, Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6 anticipate this. When Paul says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, Paul writing to the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then again, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, Paul teaches the same thing. He says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I've labored over you in vain. Kevin DeYoung, Presbyterian minister in the PCA, writes the following about these verses. He says, I know that some people have tried to argue that the Sabbaths mentioned here in Colossians 2 are the monthly festivals, not the weekly festivals. I'm not exegetically convinced that you can find that meaning in the word. In fact, that triumvirate here, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, occurs several times in the Old Testament as well, specifically Ezekiel 45 and Hosea 2, in that exact same order, and in a different order, Sabbath, new moons, and annual feasts, in Second Chronicles 8 and 31. This threesome of items moves from festivals, which were annual, to new moons, which were monthly, to Sabbaths, which were weekly. So I can't avoid the conclusion that this is talking about the weekly Sabbath, end quote. So where does that exactly put Mr. DeYoung, who is a Westminster theological uh, seminary, not, uh, but it teaches at a Reformed school? He writes the following. He says, the fourth commandment is very tricky. It seems like most Christians are either oblivious of the Sabbath and treat it like Saturday, interrupted by church, or they advocate a strict Sabbatarianism that tries hard to apply to Sunday the details of the law of Moses, minus the death penalty, of course. That would get a little messy. Personally, I prefer the simple approach laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism. Go to church on the festive day of rest and cease from our evil ways every day of the week. My view is somewhere between the fourth commandment doesn't apply anymore and Sunday is a new Old Testament Sabbath. This position has the advantage of being middle of the road, which, of course, has the disadvantage of upsetting people on both sides of the road. <laughs> and he was received by the Presbyterian Church in America because that is a legitimate position to take on the Sabbath. I find myself leaning in that direction for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, I don't want to go as far as Luther in the direction of discontinuity as to not recognize some continuity between the old covenant Sabbath and the new covenant Lord's Day. I don't want to separate and, and acknowledge a, a great discontinuity. Here's what Luther said in his own Lutheran way. If anybody anywhere tells you the day is made holy for the mere day's sake, if anyone anywhere sets up its observance on a Jewish foundation, then I order and order you not to work on it, ride on it, dance on it, feast on it, or do anything that shall remove it, then this is a great encroachment on Christian liberty and must be shunned. That's Luther. <laughs> so he's going he's gonna to push back on any significance whatsoever to any day. But neither would I be concerned 
or, but, but rather, I would be concerned, along with John Calvin, that we not so emphasize continuity that we neglect to recognize some serious discontinuity. Here's what Calvin says. But since this commandment has a particular consideration distinct from the others, it requires a slightly different order of exposition. The early fathers customarily called this commandment a foreshadowing because it contains the outward keeping of a day, which upon Christ's coming was abolished with the other figures. This they say truly, but they touch upon only half the matter. Hence, we must go deeper in our exposition. So he wants to acknowledge that Christ's coming had a significant import on our understanding of the Sabbath day, but he's not prepared to go as far as Luther and say, well, that doesn't mean anything to us other than that Christ fulfilled it. So the New Testament then acknowledges some of that struggle that we're going to have in reference to the Sabbath. And what I want to say is that there must be some important sense in which the Sabbath is no longer a binding holy day, but listen to me, as it was under the Mosaic Covenant. That's very important for New Testament Christians. We don't stone people. The Mosaic addenda to the Sabbath are no longer binding on God's people. We don't observe Sunday the same way that the Jews observe Saturday because that would imply that they're still waiting on a Messiah, and we're not. But that's not at all that we need to say about the fourth commandment because there seems to be continuity between certain principles of the Sabbath and early Christian practice. The old Sabbath, yes, disappears, but a comparable Lord's Day in some ways takes its place. For instance, consider the example of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. In John 20, Luke 24, Mark 16, all the gospel writers talking about the resurrection of Jesus, they all add that the resurrection took place on literally on the one of the Sabbath. That's the way it's translated. It, we translate it often on the first day of the week. So obviously, even in the resurrection accounts, there's some sort of Sabbath-like thinking to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day, then, is given a new day. It's a new day given to us under the new covenant to be observed in a new way. Sundays are special. They're the day on which Christ rose. So in a very real sense, Jesus inaugurates a new creation through his resurrection on the first day of the week. And we're a part of that as believers. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And when Christ escaped the tomb and rose victoriously from the dead, a new creation was inaugurated and he entered into his rest, just as God did in Genesis chapter 2 at the original creation. And this day is memorialized on the first day of the week, just as sure as the first creation is commemorated on the seventh day. There's rest and enthronement in both creations. In Genesis 2, God rests as he is enthroned from finishing his work. On the first day of the week, in the new covenant, Jesus is enthroned and rested. There's Sabbath principles that are overlapping there. And then in Revelation 1.10, John, in the book of Revelation, calls the day in which he was receiving his visions the Lord's Day. This day commemorates the resurrection and the inauguration of a new creation. It has some organic connections and similarities to the creation and Mosaic Sabbath, but it's not exactly the same. It's actually better. 
As B.B. Warfield said, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's Day out of the grave with him on resurrection morning. It's so much better. We are looking forward to a greater rest, a greater promised land, as John, Jonathan and the team so faithfully led us through this morning. We're looking to pass a greater Jordan into a greater Canaan. And so that's accomplished all because Christ defeated death for us. And then this is made clear by New Testament church practice. Remember, there is a pattern in the Bible of Christians gathering on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and that's why we follow that pattern today. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, probably a reference to the Lord's Supper, Paul talked with them, which is a sermon, likely, talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And then 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So somehow from these two passages, we get the idea that the church was gathering, they were taking the Lord's Supper, they were hearing preaching, praise God, not till midnight. That would not be a good, if we're going to legalistically follow everything that would not you guys would not vote for that as favorable and i wouldn't either but they have preaching or at least paul reporting and talking you have lord's supper you have gathering you have collecting or that is giving offerings and all that taking place on the first day of the week sounds like worship to me so james boyce is correct when he says as we turn to the new testament to see how the lord's day was observed we find that it was not observed with keeping of Old Testament regulations. Instead, the Lord's Day was a day of joyous activity for Christians, a day for worship and spiritual refreshment, for witness and for activities of service and ministry to others. That's what we see. So, in conclusion then, I want to walk us through three applications for the Lord's Day, and by that, the Old Covenant Sabbath, for us as Christians today. And here, here, here they are in order. First of all, the Lord's Day orients us to Christ. The Lord's Day orients us to Christ. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to go throughout Monday through Saturday forgetful of Jesus. And that's a sad commentary on my remaining sinfulness and my fallenness. But I just, and, and like I'm in the Word, I'm praying, I'm seeking to live a godly life, I'm trying to live with the Lord ever before me, and yet nevertheless, there are seasons and moments and days and that I'm just oblivious to God. And the Lord's Day was given to us as a gift from Jesus to remind us that he is reigning and resting on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 picks up on this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. What rest? The rest that Jesus is presently enjoying. We have it in foretaste now. We will have it in ultimate measure when he comes again. But right now, if we believe in Christ, we've entered into the Sabbath rest of Christ. So the Sabbath command points beyond itself to a greater rest through Jesus. We are called to remember the Sabbath most fundamentally by trusting the work of Jesus Christ for us. You know, Jesus came along and he changed everything, friends. This is why the Sabbath was so debated in the Gospels. They felt like Jesus was a threat to their Sabbath-keeping, and he was to a certain degree. He was certainly a threat to their legalistic approach to it, but he was also a threat 
to what they saw as the ultimate fulfillment of it. That's why he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. They start to get out stones and want to kill him. But he is. He's not only the the Lord of the Sabbath in the sense that he gets determined whether or not the Old Covenant Sabbath goes away, a Lord's Day is raised in its, or whatever, or just that he just calls it, I'm the point. I'm the point. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So you see, as a good Jew, in fact, as the true Israel, Jesus did work. And he worked hard, and he worked six days, and he labored. And he came to remake this world from the inside out. But all that hard work was heading, brothers and sisters, toward rest. Therefore, as the law requires, Jesus worked right up until the afternoon of the sixth day. Remember the six days of Friday. Picture him there on the cross, working on the eve of the Sabbath. Right up to the point of death. Bleeding, shedding blood, sweating and tears, all to save the world. And what does he say as night closes on the sixth day? It is finished. It's finished. Christ finishes his work on the sixth day. And then he rests in the grave on that holy Saturday, doing no work. And wonderfully, on the next day, he rises up into a whole new week. And in fact, a whole new world. This new world begins with consummation and rest. Under the old covenant, the day of rest was at the end. Peace was the finish line. But Christ took on that work himself. Having accomplished it, his day, the Lord's day, is at the beginning of the week. So for us in the new covenant, peace is not something we work for, it's something we work from. It's the foundation of our lives. Before you do anything in a week, you already have God's presence and peace promised to you. Before you lift a finger, you have it all. We do not strive uphill towards rest. We walk downhill from it. That's the significance of the Christian Sabbath. Today, you and I will live our lives with our fallen bodies, and we're going to groan along with this fallen world. We're going to do that all week long. Our bodies and our world are waiting for the coming rest when Jesus returns. As According to Romans 8, it's groaning for it. But right now, it's appropriate one day in seven to rest these old tired bodies and to keep this pattern which God has made for this old world. But spiritually speaking, it doesn't matter the day and it doesn't matter the hour. It doesn't matter how much or how little you have worked. Right now, you have spiritual rest. Because of Jesus, you never have to strive for spiritual Sabbath. To a burdened, burnout world, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of us are running around like crazy, thinking, when when will I get a break? And God says, I made this day for you, not to punish you or keep you in bondage or to point you in the direction of work, but to give you the freedom you so desperately need. 
the freedom offered by resting in Christ. Freedom to stop working, stop planning, stop plotting, stop fretting, stop fussing, stop worrying, and trying to prove to yourself, to your parents, your spouse, your kids, your boss, or the church. You don't have to earn anything. You're valuable. You're loved. You're wanted. You don't have to prove anything. The world does not depend on you. Your salvation does not depend on you. In the ultimate sense, your family doesn't even depend on you. And can you hear the sweet voice of Jesus tell you this morning, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take him at his word. Believe in him, trust in him, run to him. And then every resurrection day, every Lord's day, give expression to what you believe by giving yourself a break to gather with his people and give him praise. So that's what the Lord's day, first of all, orients us to is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Lord's day orients us to the future. The Lord's day orients us to the future. Hebrews chapter four, verses nine through 11 underscore this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, yes, when we believe in Christ, we enter into his Sabbath rest. But listen, there's a greater Sabbath rest coming, and that is the final rest in heaven with him. And he says, strive to enter that rest. Now, that's, a, that's, that's disjointing to us. Like, what? Strive to rest? How's that? How do you strive to rest? By resting. <laughs> By resting in Christ. Edmund Clowney says, the author of Hebrews describes the future rest that awaits the people of God, the perfect rest of God that has no ending. That hope of heaven awaits us. It's the place where we will enter the rest of God, the creator, a rest in which perfect love will cast out all our fears, a resting place prepared ahead of us by our older brother, Jesus, who will wipe away every tear and a resting place where there will be no more sin or suffering or pain or separation or loneliness. End quote. That, that's what, and, and what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the old covenant Israelites who had a Sabbath to point them forward, to po- or to point them back and to remind them of creation and remind them of, their, of the sign of the covenant, and remind them that they were redeemed from Israel and yet, or Egypt, and yet they did not do it. They did not obey God. They didn't follow God. And the writer of the Hebrews says, don't be like them. You follow the Lord. You hold to the Lord. You trust the Lord. And that's how we enter his rest. It's by faith. And the reason they didn't enter the rest is because they didn't believe. Finally, the Lord's day not only orients us to Christ, it not only orients us to the future, but it orients us to the church. It orients us to the church. Same book of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 the writer says let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near see the lord's day brothers and sisters is profoundly corporate it's a weekly family reunion with our brothers and sisters as we gather in our father's house under his love to worship our elder brother in light of his redemption, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospels, we see Jesus emphasizing the spiritual significance of the Sabbath. While Jesus lived under the Old Covenant, 
since the new covenant was not inaugurated until his death and resurrection, he certainly kept all the Mosaic commands regarding the Sabbath, but he did not hesitate to break the traditions and customs of the Jews. Jesus, friends, was less concerned about strict Sabbatarianism and more concerned to get to the heart of the Sabbath. For Jesus, the Sabbath was a day of freedom, Luke 13, 10-17. It was a day of healing, Luke 14, 1-6. And it was a day of doing good, Mark 3, 1-6. And so we should not be surprised that this doing good to each other is a chief purpose of the Lord's Day. In fact, the Lord's Day is profoundly corporate, as we saw. We are to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here's what Tom Schreiner says. He says, New Covenant believers say goodbye to the Old Covenant Sabbath, for it belongs to the Old Covenant and we don't live under that administration. But we also say hello to the Sabbath. For the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and points us to our future heavenly rest. So let's say hello. (laughs) Welcome. And so yes, we still need to obey the fourth commandment. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But we need to see how Jesus transforms it. He gives us the substance, according to Colossians 2, instead of the shadow. Trust was the point of the Mosaic shadows, but now the substance is here. Sabbath rest is about making Jesus Christ the center of who we are and relying on him alone for salvation. It means ceasing to find approval and righteousness in our deeds. It means we stop doubting God's promises and start trusting that spiritual vitality is found only by resting in him. Keeping the Sabbath means we give up on ourselves and we give ourselves over to God, letting the Lord work in us through his spirit. And so begin already in this life, the eternal Sabbath. And then weekly, we gather to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us and to look forward to the future of what he will do for us. Sabbath permeates the Lord's day because it reminds us that we are to rest in Christ and we have a future rest that we are striving to enter all by grace through faith. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the pattern that you set up in creation. We are grateful for what you commanded of your people under the old covenant. We are, we are instructed by what you teach us and share with us about your heart. We thank you that you have called us to work. We know that is part of your goodness to us in creation, that we are to labor but you've also called us to rest. And you've called us to rest most fundamentally in you, in the Savior that you have provided, in Christ Jesus our Lord, who is Lord of the Sabbath. And you've called us to remember him, to remember him resurrected from the dead, the inaugurator of the new creation, conquering death and bringing light and immortality to light through the gospel and promising us a future rest. So we thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for the gathering that we have each and every week that reminds us of our Sabbath rest, that calls us to Sabbath rest, and that points us forward to eventual Sabbath rest. May you, may you cause us to rest in Christ this day, 
all over again. Thank you that we get to work from peace and not for peace. We get to work from rest and not for rest. Thank you for inaugurating a new creation on this day by the, by the powerful resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, in whose name we pray and in whose name we trust and in whose name we sing. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our King.